Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. In a moment, I'm going to invite Paul Alexander to come and bring God's word to us. Paul Alexander is the um, principal of Madison Hall Bible College. And uh, just remain standing. Why don't you put your hands together and welcome Paul Alexander to come and share the word. And now you may be seated. Well, thank you for that amazing welcome. Now the scripture, the word that we're going to be sharing is based out of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all, and one of the other reasons is that uh, it's a story that I would imagine pretty much everyone, whether you've been part of church for a long time or not, would know. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, and I think you would be familiar, of course, we still use that language. We've got Good Samaritan legislation going on in Parliament right now, all based on the story. But it starts out in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, and it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the forever question, isn't it? That's the question we all have imprinted into our humanity. What do we do? Why are we alive? How do we inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? And then this expert in the law said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. They knew that. That was in the law. Anybody who had read the law, anybody who was in any way religious would know that that's exactly what the law required. Love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And then this expert in the law thought, no, I'm not satisfied yet. Jesus hasn't quite got it. He doesn't understand how difficult this all is. This is pretty intricate stuff. And so in a way, really testing Jesus, he then said, so who is my neighbor? And brilliantly, Jesus replies by telling the story of the Good Samaritan, which we'll unpack in just a moment. In many ways, this whole incident that's recorded in Luke chapter 10 started out in the sort of world that I'm part of on a regular basis. It's an academic debate. It started out in the legal academies of the Jewish experts at that time. They were very given over to long debates and long discussions. They tried to work out where the comma needed to be and what this little innuendo was. And a little bit in some ways like modern academics, they were always giving themselves over to all kinds of detail. What does this mean? What was it meant back there? And how does it translate today? And They would spend hours and hours and hours in academic debates. And this particular part of the law troubled them in so many ways. Because they could understand what it meant to love God. That didn't seem to be too complicated. But they weren't quite sure what God meant when he said you should love your neighbor. And so they had 
endless debates over who is your neighbor. That's why he asked Jesus, because it was actually the sort of debates that they were having in their academic institutions. And there were really sort of three levels, if you like, to the debate. The first debate went something like this. Perhaps what God means when he tells us to love our neighbor is to love the people in our neighborhood, literally our neighbor. Perhaps that's what God means, our next door neighbor, maybe the person who lives across the street. Is that what God's really referring to? And so, of course, they had their typical long academic debate about it. And at the end of it all, they came to the conclusion that that wasn't exactly what God was meaning. It was too restrictive. Even they understood that there's no way that God only wants you to love the people on the left and the right and over the road. And apart from all of that, sometimes the people who live on the left and the right and across the road can be unbelievably irksome individuals. You've got to live with them all of the time, and we all know what it's like to have troublesome neighbors. And so they began to exclude that from their thinking. Surely, no, God doesn't want us to only love our neighbor, and perhaps he doesn't really expect us to love our neighbor, because if you knew my neighbor, not even God would expect you to love my neighbor, would be the kind of way they would discuss it in their academic institutions. So then they went a step further. They said, well, if it's not our immediate neighbors, ah, we think we know who it is. And the second layer of their academic discussion went something like this. It probably refers to the people within our national boundaries, those people who we associate with nationally. Those are our neighbors. And they had a fairly good reason for saying that. And they understood nationality and they understood a certain amount of their national pride. And, and the longer they discussed that, the more they thought maybe, but then, no, maybe not. Because actually what really disgusted them was that the people who they identified as neighbors within the geographical area of their homeland were not all people of their own kind. There were, there, there were, there were colonists there. They were cruel Roman colonists, and colonists are really bad people. Here were people who were imposing themselves upon you. They had the right by law to come up to you and say, hey, you, not even call you by your name, please will you carry my coat, or will you give me your coat, I want it, or will you carry my bag, and they could compel you to do anything by law, they had imposed themselves so much. So there were these foreign people who had come amongst them, and really they were not nice people. They didn't eat nice food. They smelt different to everybody else, and they really didn't like them. And so when they got to the end of this long academic discussion, they came to the conclusion that when the law requires you to love your neighbor as yourself, well, it couldn't be so restrictive as your next-door neighbor. And certainly, because of the non-homogenous nature of the national scene, it couldn't only mean our nationality, people who lived in our country, because those people are just so sort of different. And so having gone through that layer of discussion, they then finally came to their interpretation. They got it. Ah, they said, now we know what the Bible really means. Now we know what the law involves. We come to this conclusion that when God says, love me, that's easy, and then love your neighbors yourself, what that means is we need to love people just like ourselves. Ah, that's it. That makes sense. 
And so the teachers of the law were very forthright in saying that when you are required by law to love your neighbor, that doesn't refer to people who are different to you. It means people just like you. You need to love them because you've got to hold the purity of the race. That's how God is honored, by us keeping ourselves separate. And so who we love have got to be people just like us. And that was quite a comfortable way to interpret the law until an individual by the name of Jesus turned up on the scene and he seemed to know the law and even more, every time he preached he was able to expound the law brilliantly and then seemed to add to his authority by healing people and so he started to confuse them in their very nicely conceived idea of interpreting the law. Can you see what an irksome person Jesus was to the experts of the law? They had spent decades working it all out. They had their systems in place. They had written their commentaries and now Jesus came along and he knew the law and God seemed to be with him because there were miracles occurring, but he actually seemed to love people who were so unlike themselves. He went into the homes of prostitutes and perhaps even worse, tax collectors, sellouts, People who had corrupted their national identity for the sake of a few pounds on the side. And so they were always trying to work Jesus out. Always trying to trip him up. Always trying to find some way to get through his defenses. And this man came and thought, I know. We've spent so long working this issue out about who our neighbor is. I know what I'll do. I'll get him on that point. I'll get him on... Who is your neighbor? And so he asked the question, and that's how Luke chapter 10 came to be written. Isn't it amazing how brilliant Jesus was? Unpack it for a few moments, his response. Jesus didn't give an immediate response. He told a story. And in that story, he chose not an ordinary person. He chose a Samaritan. You've got to understand, friends, that when you read in the Bible about the Samaritan, take the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict and put that on steroids and multiply it ten times. That's how bad it was back then. I mean, it was seriously bad. These people, they were half-castes. They were, they were racially discriminated against. They were really badly treated on the ground of racism. And racism is the most hurtful thing. If you've suffered at the bad end of racism, it's unbelievably hurtful. It gets right to the core of who you are. And these people were the constant targets of racism. And, uh, of course, they were sort of, strange religion. They had a strange religion. They weren't quite Jews, but they believed in Abraham and they had their own little mountain. And and so they were hated and despised. And Jesus, in trying to give this man some insight into who your neighbor really is, chose a Samaritan. How do you know who your neighbor is? How do you inherit eternal life? How do you respond to the injunction that the Bible makes clear that we should love the Lord our God, but love our neighbor as all our, as yourself. How do we relate to that today? Now, I'm going to be unashamedly missionary in the next 10 minutes. But of course, that doesn't all have to happen overseas. It can happen right next door. Let, let me try and help you find who your neighbor is. And I hope you'll be challenged as I share it. I think the first phase in discovering who our neighbor is, is that we've actually got to look See, become informed. Friends, there is a huge responsibility upon all of you that are Christ followers, not just to come to church, to be blessed. 
you do have to mature in your Christian faith to the point that you say, I need to be informed about what's going on in my culture. I need to be informed about what the Bible really says. I want to have a level of finding out what's going on. You see, the first person that went down the road, who was very much like the teacher of the law, he was a priest and then a Pharisee. These were people who really belonged in his category of neighbors. What did they do? They passed by on the other side of the road. They weren't going to look at this man that had fallen amongst robbers. They weren't going to look into his wounds. They weren't going to find out what was going on. They had no desire for the routine of their life to be upset one little bit. And so Jesus poignantly says that they took one glancing look and they passed by on the other side. Don't trouble my life. Don't interrupt my life. Don't come to me with anything that's going to disturb the way in which I'm currently living my life. Friends, if church has got any meaning to us, every now and again we've got to take each other's hands and we've got to walk across to people who are much worse off than ourselves. We've got to look into the wounds of those that are broken and bruised and we've got to say, we have to become informed. We have to be people who know what's going on. You cannot live a Christ-following life and pass by on the other side of the road in any issue if you truly discover what eternal life is. I think that we've got to become much more astute in understanding culture. Culture is shifting. And so often church lags behind cultural shift and we become very threatened. And Look what's happening out there in the world. Well, friends, things are happening, but it's not all bad. And it's not all anti-Christian, and it's not in any way excluding the preaching of the gospel in a very real way, but we've got to become alert and in tune. We spend great swathes of our lives helping leaders understand what we sometimes call the postmodern milieu, just understanding what's going on, because, you know, a 14-year-old in some ways has a completely different vocabulary to an 18-year-old. And I think it's wonderful when Christians become alert and say, we've got to reach people, we've got to touch people, we've got to understand the cultural dynamics of our town and of our community. And it's lovely to see such diversity here today. I think we've got to understand the Bible. You know, we treat the Bible sometimes so superstitiously. It's kind of a mantra that we say over and over again. You can say, the Lord is my shepherd 15 times a day, friends, but until you understand why it was written, where it was written, what it is written for, and how you can personally appropriate those biblical truths and string them together with all the other ways in which God has revealed himself over the great centuries of Bible writing, then the Bible will still only be a religious mantra instead of God's liberating truth to your hearts. So I'm here today to simply say, I'm urging you to discover your neighbor. And part of his seeing Looking, taking time. That Samaritan could have passed by on the other side and said, Ha, oh, another bleeding Jew. Well, now you know how it feels. We've lived like that for decades. You treat us in that sort of way. You have abused us. You have misused us. You've been racist in your attitudes. Another bleeding Jew. But he had enough internal capacity to say, I'm going to find out what's going on. What's up with this man? And he got involved. And it changed both of their lives. Years ago, I was teaching a missions class. 
I'm embarrassed to think what I taught now. I knew very little about mission. And every time there was a really difficult question, I would have this kind of pat answer. I'd say, that's a fascinating question. You know, it's coming up in the next lesson. So um, just hold your question until then. And then there would be coffee break and I'd shoot off. I didn't drink coffee for the first two or three years of my academic life. I'd rush through and I'd look up the books and I'd come back. I'd say, your question, now it's come up and I'd have the answer because I'd checked it in the book. But I was always sort of really, you know, sailing very close to the wind in my knowledge. And, and I'll never forget one day I had a class of about six or eight students. They were an international group. And I was teaching mission, uh, some kind of mission theology. And uh, all of a sudden, I just had one of those overwhelmingly sort of honest moments. I felt a little bit of a hypocrite. And I'll never forget, I looked across these students and I said, you know, guys, I have to tell you, I'm teaching you what I read yesterday. Um, I don't know if I know enough about this to teach you. Thanks for your confidence. And I appreciate the opportunity to teach. It's a bit better now. We've got some studies behind us. But, um, and I had heard just about 20 miles from where we were, we were serving in South Africa at the time, um, I'd heard that about 20 miles away, there was a significant influx of refugees from the civil war in Mozambique. Very cruel, horrible war that was going on and displaced literally thousands, tens of thousands of people. And they would stream across the border into neighboring South Africa. And I'd heard that they were turning up, traumatized, having lost everything. And I'll never forget the day where I really just sort of came clean. I said, I'm not sure what to teach you. So what do you say that we go and we learn mission by doing it? I said, great, we're up for that. Somebody had donated a beaten out old combi van. So we all piled into it. And I'll never forget the day that we did it. We made our way out. We weren't quite sure we were going. We knew the broad, the, the broad area. We drove out on the tar road. We turned off onto the dirt road. We then went off onto a track. And eventually we were literally making our way around the bushes, asking a few questions every now and again as to where these people might be. And then just in the side of my aisle, never forget that moment, I saw a few sticks put together with plastic bags tied around those sticks. And we went over and sitting under the stick, unable to give us even a good day response, was a traumatized woman staring through glazed eyes. We began to make some inquiries. We had a few conversations with others around her. Discovered that that lady the night before in her haste to flee from the soldiers had rushed into the bush and had been attacked by a hyena and had had her baby dragged from her arms and she heard the baby carried away into the bush and killed by a hyena. Can you imagine the trauma? Unbelievable trauma. So we sat down. We did our best to help. We went back two days later in the back of the van. We put in some picks and shovels. And we were the first people ever to build latrines for those refugees. And that was the birth of a whole primary health training program that is now a very reputable nursing school operating in that part of the country to this day. And we'd never do that. We'd never have that happening. It would not be occurring if we hadn't taken time to go and look, to go and see, to go and do. And I, I'm just a visitor, just amongst you for the morning. But can I ask you, friends, in your journey of spirituality, your fellowship within this church, that in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, you don't forget to discover who your neighbor is. And part of that is having an appetite to learn, to see, to look, to be informed, to grow, 
so that when people stretch you and help you and talk about Bible study groups and Bible schools on Thursday night, that, 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 that there comes a more spontaneous response in your heart to say, yes, count me in. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to expand. I can tell you, friends, every major development in my spirituality, somewhere in the process was a willingness to cross the road and see. And not just say, well, I've always lived this way and If you've always lived that way, you'll never change. You'll pass by on the other side, and life will never, ever change. So that's the first part of discovering who your neighbor is. Here's the second part. The second part is this. Not only do we have to see, but I think we also have to learn to feel. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what happened when that Samaritan looked at this man and his wounds, except that he did something quite significant, and he poured in oil and he poured in wine, which speaks about soothing and healing. But all that I can imagine is that this man who crossed the road and saw the man who had fallen amongst thieves had enough emotion and empathy inside of him not to just leave him in this condition, but to do something about it. It tells me that there was feeling. It tells me that something had happened that within the emotion of his heart he really felt as though he had to respond and you see I'm convinced friends that part of our journey into discovering our neighbor and living as we should and embracing the plans of God for our lives is that we should be people who feel as you go back through church history there have been all sorts of things in church history that have tried to knock the stuffing out of our feelingness if there is such a word But you get what I'm saying. And so we've been taught to be stoic and unfeeling. And especially if you've got a sort of a Western European background, stiff upper lip and all that sort of stuff. And yet there's something that's impoverished in the soul of a human being that doesn't feel, has no compassion. That's why I love child sponsorship schemes and missions trips and just this Thursday Our students are scattering to 12 nations around the world. It's part of our BA course. The only college I know in this country that does it. But you know why, friends? Because when you go and you touch somebody who's far less fortunate than yourself, it starts to do something on the chemistry of your soul. And again, I confess to you, I'm just a visitor. I'm not here being your pastor. But I'd have to say, as much as I'm able, I would have to look into your eyes and say, Please won't you commit yourself to be feeling people, not analytical or critical all of the time. I know we train that way. Our society kind of preconditions us to do that. But I think that Christ followers are people who embrace truth and they learn to love it. And when we sing songs, we get involved and our sense of emotion, we we, we know what it's like to be alive. We have a a feeling about ourselves. There's something incredibly spiritual about Christ's followers, God's people, being feeling people. Are you moved? Are you touched? Can there be things that stir your heart? Or is it just so much old hat? You getting my heart? Years ago, I was chairing a board meeting of board of directors of college in southern Africa that we had founded and people had flown in from around the world for our board meeting 
And I remember I got a message. I was really quite put out by it all, but I got this message uh, that a medical doctor that was working in our staff had asked to take just five minutes at the start of our meeting. Well, I've, I thought that was all very presumptuous. I thought, well, if it's our meeting, I could tell you which part of the meeting she could come to, but she'd asked for five. So I was already a little bit out of sorts. And uh, I remember saying, okay, well, we'll do it, but uh, I hope she makes it quick. And I, 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 I was really quite put out by the demands that I felt this woman was putting on a very busy meeting of very busy people. We had a big agenda to get through over the day. Well, we set up and the woman came in and to go from bad to worse and annoy me even more, I'm being really honest, she said, I'm not quite sure what to say today. I thought, that's not good enough. We're busy people. We've given you five minutes of our time. Surely you could have come with the handouts and the PowerPoint and got done really, really efficiently. Those are my thoughts. Then she looked at us through really empathetic eyes. She said, Perhaps the easiest thing to do is to tell you what happened this morning when I went out to our little rural clinic. said I was just putting my few basic instruments out, busy days, seeing people, raw health issues. She said the door was open and three kids came in. They were ushered in by somebody else. They were clearly traumatized. The oldest, who was eight years old, was clutching his mother's passport. And when I made some inquiries, I found out that these kids had been missed in the community. And somebody had finally said, we need to go and look for them. And found them in their house, sitting with their mother's corpse. They'd been with their mother's corpse for four days. Nobody had even known that the lady had died. There were no other family members because of the old HIV AIDS pandemic. And she said we had to do something for them. They brought them to the only place that they knew and We've placed them with some of our friends in the community. She said, we were just getting over that. And um, I was, again, setting out my few instruments. And the door opened again. And this time, there was a foul smell. She said, I looked over. And somebody was carrying, you know, really gingerly a sodden mass. Placed this blanket down on my table. It was a sewage-soaked blanket. And as we opened it up, there was a six our old baby girl still had part of the umbilical cord that had been rudely and badly cut, connected. Her mother had HIV AIDS and decided she wasn't going to bring this baby into the world that she was suffering in. So in the loneliness of her bedroom, gave birth, cut through the cord with a dirty razor blade, took the baby in a blanket, smothered the baby and dropped her into a long drop toilet, except that the baby survived. And as we opened the blanket, she said, she let out a cry. We washed her, we fed her. That baby's going to be strong and healthy. But we needed to do something for that baby. And so I'm here today, not entirely sure what I need to ask you to do, except I'm asking you to do something. Please will you allocate funds? Please will you prioritize the planning of this college to facilitate the care of the poorest of poor? Have a good day, gentlemen, she said. And she left. I'm here today, friends, to tell you we never did have our board meeting. How dare we? How dare we have a board meeting when you've just heard stories like that? I'll be back there a week tomorrow. And I could take you back now. And there's a vast complex that's been built, part of which is a kind of a hospice caring for terminally ill people. Every single 
month of my life, I get emails from some of the people that we facilitated out there saying, we had a busy week this week, but I'm glad to say three babies' lives were saved as a result of us being there. Literally hundreds have been changed because we stopped our meeting. We were impacted by the story and our hearts were moved. Is your heart moved? If your heart's never moved, if you feel sorry for yourself all of the time and you've developed internal calluses and you're sick and tired of being told that you need to respond to people's needs because you yourself are in need, here's my compassionate word, friends. Look out beyond yourself. Touch somebody less fortunate than yourself. Do something by which your heart is melted again and see if it doesn't bring perspective to your life and help you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and inherit eternal life because you love your neighbor. Of course, there's a third dimension. and I'll share it in just two minutes. You've got to look. You've got to feel. Of course, you've got to do. Everything eventually has to be translated into some level of doing. It's remarkable what the Samaritan did. He put the man on his own donkey, took him to the base of the pass. He took him into an inn, and I did a little calculation. He paid at least one month's wages of a working man for him to be nursed and cared back to strength. That was incredibly generous. And actually, that's the dangerous part of being Christ followers because we come to Jesus and he does start to work inside of us and he does give us a hope and a future, but then we suddenly realize that our lives are now connected with a big world and we cannot live selfishly anymore. We've got to find things by which we do. It might be part of getting a building project completed by which we live unselfishly. See, friends, we don't do this just because we all have certain egos that want nice new buildings or send people on mission trips or build certain things and say, look what we're doing. Actually, those of us who really love Jesus, we do it because we want his name to be made great and people's lives to be touched and changed. And we want to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. And we want to love our neighbor as ourselves, and in so doing inherit eternal life. And I'm putting out an unashamed call as a friend amongst you today, to live unselfishly, passionately, feelingly. Jesus turned to the expert in the law. He said, so you tell me now, who's the neighbor? And even then, the expert in the law, with all his prejudice, couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just threw greater teeth said, he that had mercy on the man who had fallen amongst robbers. I've discovered that to live our lives in a God-honoring way, we have to be people who are constantly hungry to be informed, really ready to be challenged at the level of our emotion and feeling, because that's how we process thought, and then prepared to actually do something by which we make his name great and we touch other people's lives. And it's that challenge that I bring to you today. You've listened brilliantly. Thanks for the welcome. But I leave it with you. Do. Find something. Grow yourself in some way. Engage some more of God's kingdom and God's work. And see if he hasn't lined up an amazing adventure for you that you couldn't have even imagined. As you get out of looking after yourself and your own needs and your own cares and say, I want to look across the wall. I want to touch God's world. Suddenly. The plans and purposes of God flow into your lives and you're able to see 
why you were born and what you're really made for. Thank you for listening and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.